A few weeks ago, I wrote an article for Human Infrastructure Magazine issue 188 where I compare open source software to adopting a puppy. Puppies are cute and fun, but you have to train them to be a grown-up dog that you can actually live with. I further compared commercial software offerings to being more like a grown-up dog that's been trained, and my point was... It's a trade-off. You pay in money for commercial software, right? But that doesn't make open source, by contrast, actually free because with open source software, you're going to pay a DIY tax to make it do all the things that you might need it to do. Our guest today is Daniel Teshney. Daniel tweeted at me about this article, arguing that commercial software can often be a puppy too, and so we're going to talk about that. Is there really a trade-off in open source software versus commercial software? Has commercial software gotten so bad I don't, okay, I'm not going to call out any of you vendors. Has commercial software gotten so bad that you might as well go open source? Is open source not as time intensive as I'm making it out to be, maybe? Daniel, welcome to Heavy Networking. And uh, hey, man, it is excellent to have you. Thanks for calling me out on Twitter and making me feel bad about myself and all of that. But uh, maybe we should start by you kind of <laughs> stating your thoughts on my uh, my metaphor of open source software as a puppy and commercial software being more like a grown-up dog. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Um, great to be here. Yeah, I mean, my tweets were a little bit tongue-in-cheek, as as we do on Twitter. Um, it's, it's always, I find it a little bit of entertainment. But yeah, just uh, wanted to chat today and just talk about some of the, the things that aren't talked about in relation to commercial software and um, how that uh, there are, you know, usually a lot of um, customizations or tweaks that need to be done, but they're not really talked about. So looking forward to the chat today to talk about you know, the comparisons between the both and, and what people should consider when they're looking at um, making an assessment as to which way they go down. So, so let's start at the beginning then. If I, I was saying open source software basically needs a lot of care and feeding is, is the point, you're yep. kind of making the thing grow up. Um, and in the article I wrote, I had said, well, okay, well, here's Observium, an open source project a lot of us in networking are familiar with. And it did some things, but it didn't do a lot of things. It didn't do, you know, that maybe would have been interesting for it to do. And to do that, we would have had to invest time in coding and so on. And then I made a comparison to uh, a SolarWinds product I use that did a lot more, but we, of course, we had yep. to pay for it. And so that then I was saying more like a grown-up dog, you know, in that context. Did I, was I unfair? Did I stretch the metaphor, do you think? No, I think um, good software is good software and bad software is bad software. And, uh, you know, I think when you're looking at using any software, you know, at its fundamental level, it provides some level of abstraction for you from, you know, taking away some, some menial thing that it offers and, um, and hides that away for you and provides you convenience. So um, I've never used Observian uh, before, but, you know, there, there's good open source software, there's good uh, commercial software, there's bad open source software and there's bad commercial software. So um, I don't think the point that you made was unfair. I just wanted to highlight that taking SolarWinds as an example, I'm sure that, you know, when it when it comes to you out of the box, you don't simply plug it into your network and and off you go and never touch it again. There's There's always constant tweaks or maintenance or patching or customizations that are required. So that was more where I was coming from. Mm. So I'm, I guess I'm thinking about it, this, this discussion from a standpoint of, uh, functionality. That is what does the software actually do for me versus what do I have to, you know, what capabilities are even there? So open source is interesting because there's so much more open source software that is coming into our networking world, different packages, different things that are being tried. Uh, if we look at Kubernetes and the ecosystem that's around that, I mean, there's an endless number of open source yep. software packages that work work yep. around that, that different uh, different companies and so on are investing in. And they just all feel like, man, I'd have to put a lot of work into that stuff to make it work. Um, so so I'll, I'll just keep picking on Kubernetes. It's complicated. There's a lot to it. If you need what it does, great. But it's it's a handful yep. to really make that thing yep. work. Versus, I guess if I had a, you know, I was going to say VMware, that's not really a fair comparison exactly to, uh, to Kubernetes, but yeah, but but you could say maybe OpenShift would be a better comparison. Red Hat, OpenShift, 
would be somewhat of a, uh, a Kubernetes as a service, which is like less care and feeding. It does a lot of stuff for you. It's a bit more stable. Yeah. I, I think maybe that's more where I was headed. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's fair enough. I think the point that you're uh, touching on there indirectly is, uh, you know, the care and feeding aspect of, of uh, looking after something that's open source. So I think sort of to take the conversation up a level, we should probably talk about, you know, what the organization you're working for um, expects out of IT and, and what they, uh, you know, perceive IT to be. Because at some companies, you know, IT is, is, is viewed as something that should just always be on and always be working and always be reliable and, you know, stay between the lanes. At other companies, though, IT is, is a, you know, competitive differentiator. So, you know, it's a way that people, you know, provide better value than their direct competitors in the market. So if you work at a company where, you know, we just need to keep lights on, we need to just keep, you know, the engines running, et cetera, then, you know, a set, taking on open source software into, into your mix of overall software that you're using to run and maintain your network, that might be a risky thing because, that's not really what the overall business objectives are. However, you know, at other companies, you know, the network might be viewed as an advantage or having a poor network might be viewed as a, a very bad disadvantage. So there might be more appetite to take a few more risks and, and assess other products uh, in, in oh, that regard. Okay. I hadn't actually thought about this from this perspective, but the point you're making here is... Sometimes puppies are fine and you want to raise the puppies. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> okay. 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 So, so this is, this is intriguing. Um, maybe you want a puppy because you actually, so you phrased it this way. You said IT is looked at in some organizations like a competitive advantage. That is, if they're good at IT, that gives them a leg up on business competition. And Absolutely. If, if the bleeding edge stuff, the software that they might need to give them that advantage happens to be open source, so be it. It's worth it to make the investment in raising the puppy. Yeah. And so, for example, I don't know if you took, I don't know, the wine industry and you had company A and, and you know, the perception from, from the executive level is, you know, we want the payment system to work every time. We're not interested in, you know, innovating on, on new online stores or, uh, you know, tailored marketing or, you know, optimizing costs in regards to, you know, implementing SD-WAN or whatever business initiative we decide. You know, we just want IT to work like a toilet, you know, mm. like uh, in, in the Phoenix Project, they mentioned, you know, the CEO, I believe in the book mentions, you know, I want to use the toilet and, you know, I don't ever want to worry about whether it's working or not. But what they definitely don't want is the toilets to back up and flood the entire building. So, I mean, they're really coming at it mm. from the point of view of just make it work and that's it. Then you might have company B who, you know, might take the opportunity to use IT as a, as a competitive advantage. So um, really investing in, you know, providing better payment platforms, maybe offering, you know, API services to logistics integrators so mm. that they can, uh, you know, tr accurately track stock better, which, you know, at the end customer who buys it in the supermarket, you know, that, you know, they're not running out of stock all the time because they're using more modern ways to solve traditional business problems. So if you look at it from that point of view, in company A, are you going to go out and, and use bleeding edge? Well, you could, but it's probably a, a career limiting move. Um, <laughs> company B, though, has probably got, you know, more business appetite, more risk to to go what's the best solution even if that means you know we have to staff you know the support and development of of this networking project no i think the staffing thing is a, is a big deal as i was thinking about this conversation one of the things that popped in my head was was organizational skill sets all right yep. if i'm going to lean into an open source project and it doesn't do everything i need it to do i've got to do that raising that puppy i need someone that can write code i need a developer that can contribute to the sure. product that features that i want which certainly a lot of businesses do they do exactly that they'll have someone on staff that's like okay we're we're vested in this project and need it to do these other things 
that we just hired you to sit and you know, write that code, or at least that'd be part of what they did. But I mean, I, I don't know, man. A lot of companies don't have that. You know, they use open source. I mean, this is a different way of thinking about it, and maybe more where I was coming from the beginning. Uh, they use open source because it's 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 free, right? It's convenient yep. to use the package. They're never going to yes. invest in it. Um, they're just going to do their best to keep it running. And then it gets abandoned yep. and, you know, all the things yep. that so often happen to those open source projects that, uh, that fall out of favor, you know, and then, then what do you do with this thing? Yeah, true. I mean, but what do you do when, when a commercial vendor gives up on their product as well? Uh, it does happen. Um, I, I, I hear you guys on multiple occasions talking about, you know, the, the numerous products that Google's given up on over the years that, that people have invested time and money into. Oh. So. I mean, it's a risk on both sides. So yeah, I think uh, whatever software you're looking at, you you really need to go through, you know, some sort of structured criteria and and assess what it is um, about the product, but what it is about the people or companies or organisations managing that product. Uh, even if it's free or even if it's a million dollars a year, you should really uh, assess everything through the same lens, so that you're clear and your manager's clear. And your team's clear, you know, what are the trade-offs that we're we're choosing? No, and those trade-offs are gonna be different by by company. I think that's again that okay, I feel like yep. I'm over two here. So cause because <laughs> this next point that you're making about um commercial vendors that abandon products, as soon as you said that, I hadn't really thought about that because but but it's yep. it's true. There's yep. a bunch of them. Like I could just take uh you know, Cisco, for example, back in the day they had as part of their early SD WAN had the iWAN yeah. product and they killed it because they bought Viptela and they really didn't want people to keep, they didn't want to keep selling iWAN. And so they, yep. they pivoted into Viptela and began leading yep. um, their SD-WAN strategy with that product. What happened to the iWAN customers? Well, presumably they've all been moved over to something else. So that does happen. Yep. It also happens with startup companies. So there's some Absolutely. startup company that's out there, looks great. And then the startup company doesn't get enough traction. They can't get enough funding and they go away or they have to pivot because reasons, or they get acquired. And depending on the nature of the acquisition, the product goes away too. So way to make me feel bad about myself, Daniel. I appreciate no, that. No. <laughs> Sorry, Ethan, man. You're, you're the wise oracle compared to me, mate. So don't, don't worry about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a few sort of uh, things that I would uh, recommend that people consider at least, or, or at least try and go and find the answer to the questions too. So, you know, uh, before we talked about, you know, open source being free, you know, in mm -hmm. quotes and, and commercial software being, you know, you, you, you pay for it. So, you know, there's a perception that because you pay for something, it's going to be better than something that you don't pay for. So um, you'll have to validate that on a case by case basis. But, you know, some, some of the things that you should consider, uh, you know, is do, do you need people to be certified in these products before using, you know, that particular piece of software? Is there mandatory training involved before you can use the software? Um, you know, does, does customization um, only come via professional services or service integrators? So are you actually allowed to do customizations yourself or do you have to pay for the privilege? You know, what's their charging model been like? You know, how do they charge you for the software? And is it trending upwards or downwards? So, you know, what what if they charge their customers for for that product for the last you know three to five years, and and how is that trending? Because if you make a commercial investment in something, you've you know if you yourself have have made a recommendation to your management and and the management's management, you know you're you're effectively um, endorsing that product for for a period of time. So it would be it'd be wise to work out you know. What's the bill going to look like in 2023 for that particular piece? And then, and then just more about the companies in general. You know, are they angling to be bought out by someone else? So, you know, um, often, often, uh, you know, often yourself and Craig cover companies, and you know, uh, you know, who's who's the last SD WAN vendor? You know, in the room without without a without a uh, chair, you know, that sort of thing. So <laughs> right. you've got to you've got to actually, um, you know sort of a, a strategic lens over it as well. You know, if, you, if, you, if you're going to choose a product, uh, there's the product, but then there's the company. Because if they, 
if they're angling to be bought out by someone else, your user experience might be completely different when they get bought out by someone else. Um, I'm not going to talk about specifics, but I think we've all experienced that before. Um, and, you know, also, how important is this product that they're selling to you to them, you know, in relation to what they have in their catalog of offerings and what strategic objectives do they want to achieve? So you see companies buy, you know, I don't know, they buy an SD-WAN, an SD-WAN company. Is SD-WAN, you know, so they incorporate it into the, into the mother company. Is SD-WAN really, you know, their core business objective or is it we need to buy that because, you know, everyone else has one of those. So you need to, you need to consider that as well. <laughs> and then one thing that, um, that you need to consider as well is how easy or difficult is it to find, you know, talent in the market used to run that software. So I make that point in relation to commercial and open source. So if you're going to choose an, an open source product, you are doing so on the basis that most likely there's going to be minimal people that know how to use that. So you need to, as a team, you know, build in fat or build in time to, to train people up in, in those products or structure your team appropriately so that um, they can learn safely and learn slowly, or maybe look at targeting talent that has an aptitude for learning new things with minimal resources. So I think that there are a few other things that uh, people well, need to look at. Learning things with the minimal resources. Figure it out. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Re read uh, the non-existent manual. Yeah. Well, okay. So you said a ton of things there, and I wanted to go back to something you said in the or the earlier bit of that last uh, set of paragraphs. So if I'm buying commercial software, you said, what, how much training do what does my team need to have to be able to use that software, yeah. which is going to depend greatly on the maturity of software, how complex it is, how many layers yeah. there are to it, all the different functionality, what you need for it to do, how hard is yeah. it to make it do that? It can all be in the box. That doesn't mean it's easy to use. And I've dealt with products like this. So I'll give you an example. This, there was, I forgot the product name and it doesn't matter because it goes back, I don't know, 10 years or something, but it was a network simulation tool. It was very complex. You could simulate Cisco and Juniper and Checkpoint. And I don't remember what all the other different things that you could simulate with it, but it um, allowed us to test fit certain network changes before we would put them into production. It was a, it was a yep. much less expensive way than trying to replicate our lab our, our network, you know, lab with hardware. You use the simulation tool. Well, it was bloody expensive. It was, you know, six figure plus expenditure. Uh, we ended up having to devote one human to it that we didn't really have to spare, but it ended up being yep. this guy's responsibility to make this thing uh, do what it was supposed to do, keep up with the uh, the simulation. We sent him to class. Um, so the cost of acquisition was high. The human requirement was high. None of the yep. rest of us had time to figure out how to use the thing. So we had to devote someone to to being able to use it. And guess how long that product lasted as part of our regular workflow? A few months. We retried. Yep. You know, we really tried. But at the end yep. of the day... It was too much. It was too big of a request for us at our staffing levels to make it do what we needed it to do to be useful. Yeah, I, I'm surprised that you abandoned it after a few months because that's the that's the other thing I see uh, as well is when when a when a product is reassuringly expensive, there's you know the sunk cost fallacy that happens. You know, we we spent X amount of amount of dollars in it. You know, we can't give up on it. It's going to make someone look bad. So. Um, it, there's that. This is definitely that as well. You know, the, the, the good news was for us, the sunk cost fallacy didn't kick in too hard. The sunk cost fallacy, if you're listening and haven't heard that one, the, the, the big idea is we spent money on it, therefore we must use it forever. Well, that's, that's a fallacy. You don't actually have to use it forever. Just cut your losses and stop doing whatever the thing is that you spent money on. Just because you spent money on it doesn't mean you have to keep doing it forever. But for us, the... Uh, you know, the scenario was just, we had a problem to solve and didn't have the people to throw at it to make enough use of yep. the tool. Um, so now you're bringing to mind an example of a commercial tool that was a puppy we couldn't raise. Dang it, Daniel, <laughs> you're invalidating my entire argument in my article. <laughs> well, I'm not intentionally meaning to do this because, you know, we're about, we'll, we'll probably pivot soon. But um, 
I'm saying all this, but I'll be really honest with you. Commercial software is has a lot of value. And a lot of the time it abstracts away a lot of problems that I don't want to deal with. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying, you know, open source or die or anything like that. Um, what I'm saying is just, just run everything through a lens and uh, work it out because at the end of the day, um, you as a network professional or a security professional, you know, there's, 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 there's skills that you have to have. There's skills that, um, you'd like to have and then there's skills that are valuable to your your employer and your business and and what it is and so back to your example before uh you know that one person was working on something to get a test system running is that really skills that the, the company needs no they need the outcome of the test system so um if if you're working on an open source project and all you're doing is tinkering widgets that end up providing no business value but they're needed as a precursor to to provide business value, you should probably you know take time to assess and go, you know, am I spending a lot of time on something that largely could be handled for me by someone else? And, and that I think is the is is maybe the the right way to look at the trade off because it could be you do have the capabilities in house to do it, but is that uh, from a business perspective the best way for you as a business to be spending your time developing? Yep software or does it make sense to go to your favorite vendor and pay them to do that for you as long as it's good enough which is which is in fairness yet another question because uh, there's been a lot of management software i've used over the years that was okay it did a lot but it wasn't everything i could have wished for you know for sure so you end up settling for a product that cost you a good bit of money and time to make do the thing and it does 70 to 80% of what you want. And the rest of it is yep. like, eh, you know, you can put a feature request in, talk to your account rep, hey, I really need it to do this, or it should really work like this. And they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to, you know, escalate that up the food chain. And depending on how big of a customer you are, that might get some traction or it might not. Bigger customers with bigger spends tend to get results when they want new features much more quickly than the little guys. Yeah, true. But there's always a bigger whale out there. So uh, I'll take that with a grain of salt. Um, you might... Uh, I don't want to be rude to anyone, but like we all think our company's important or we're the best and we're the number one. But I'll I'll just let you just let you in on an inside tip. There's always there's always number zero. Um, so just just be just understand that in terms of you, know, you can put in a feature request and complain and and make noise, but really what should be happening is the commercial vendor who are in it to satisfy customers and, and and retain market share should probably doing most of those features anyway. And so, you know, you might want to talk as you're assessing, you know, the product, how easy is it to get new features? What what have you got on your, your feature map? Obviously, they don't have to actually deliver any of those. But again, you can look back at the product, say, you know, this is, you know, we're recording this in late 2020. You can ask, you know, what what features have you released over the last 18 months? So you can see like their feature velocity, how how fast or how frequent are they releasing new features? That may give an indicator as to how easy it is to get changes in. Well, and you could tell based on the features that they're releasing who their core customers really are. So for example, yes. if they've got some kind of a, you know, an SDN or a, you know, a big automation prod, a product and what they're doing is, Here's multi-hierarchical controllers now, so you can regionally deploy controllers and then have a master controller that pushes policy to all of them and keeps it all synchronized. And you're like, I don't need that. Who needs that? And then you go, oh, they must have some big global customer that needed that. So that's why that's a thing and what they're all excited about. So you kind of know who they're who they're going to be focused on. You know, the good news is if that big global customer that's probably driving some of that software development for that vendor happens to have some of the same problems you do, well, you're probably going to benefit from that because they're going to get some yep. of those features baked in that you need anyway. Yeah, for sure. And that's why uh, it's always good to sort of understand who their customers are as well. And yeah, if, I mean, if you can if you can get in behind that big whale and, and ride in the slipstream and, and get them to do all the beating up for you, all, all the better. Yeah, yeah. So another comment that, that you made in passing there was about documentation or lack of documentation or poor documentation, these kind of things. And okay, in fairness, that that is a differentiator that I didn't get into in my uh, puppy metaphor article, but it yep. crossed my mind. 
good documentation can make all the difference in whether it's an open source project or whether it's commercial software. I've seen the full swath on both. So to, to sing Cisco's praises a little bit, their documentation tends to be very good. They've got a process, yep. they've got a system. And if you want to understand a feature, usually they explain to you kind of why you're doing what you're doing and then get into the nuts and bolts of it. There's some other vendors, uh, you run around their documentation, you have no idea why you're doing it. They just say, here's the command, here's the flags or the parameters and, you know, do it. You're like, yes, but why would I do this? What is the context of this? What's the use case? It's a mystery. They just, they don't, <laughs> they don't tell you what it is that you're supposed to be doing. And so you're going away going, oh, great. I know the flags now. And I completely forgot the command anyway, because I don't know what I need the stupid thing for in the documentation. It's not useless, but it's almost useless. Open source is similar. I found some products or projects that are so thoroughly well-documented. Somebody just spent quality time on readthedocs.io or whatever and produced a glorious set of documentation that just gives you context and, and uh, feeling and you understand why you're doing what you're doing and they get into it all in a way that's easy to understand yep. and educational. And then other ones that's like, hit the man page and good luck. And you look at the man page and it looked like it was written by a, you know, an 80 year old Unix admin who hasn't seen the outside of a data center for a few decades and, uh, and writes everything in flags and, uh, an assembler. You're like, I don't, I don't yeah. know what just happened. That didn't help me at all. But, but the, the documentation quality can be a huge differentiator in just how useful that product is to you and how much time you have to invest into making it useful. Yeah, for sure. So that's that's that goes into the overall assessment as well. Uh, personally, I'm I'm someone who likes to self serve or or self investigate um, and and read the documentation and then you know it should it should fill in most of the gaps and then you know uh, have a couple of use case examples and then I'll go from there and adjust it to what I need. Uh, and I think uh, documentation has has changed a little bit. Over the years, uh, if you look at companies now, I mean Azure and and Terraform are two examples of 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 products, or sorry, HashiCorp, um, who actually maintain their documentation as code. You know, so they mm. they maintain it, you know, in a Git repository, and yep. you can even issue pull requests to get um, documentation updated or fixed. Uh, you know, so that from a consumer's point of view. It's actually a little bit humorous because you're essentially volunteering your own time to fix documentation that should be correct in the first place. So you, so you're <laughs> right. paying for the product and then you're paying uh, for your own time to fix their documentation. But anyway, I, I I still think that that's worth the trade-off. But what that allows people to do is you know see where the documentation is, suggest improvements, and maybe uh, maybe naively, I guess um, it allows the consumer to have some sort of mutual investment um, in the success of the product because it's it's a vehicle for people to say, hey, this is wrong. This is what it should be. Let me um, issue a pull request and then you can fix it. And then I feel like, you know, warm and fuzzy because I've, I've, I've helped get the documentation right, but I've also helped, you know, Ethan when he comes along next and tries to deploy a VNet yep. or whatever. So that's definitely changed. Even if we don't even talk about software, any product that we use without proper uh, detailed instructions, um, you can have the best product in the world, but if the instructions are unclear or, mm. or ambiguous or vague or non-existent, your, your product won't succeed. I mean, my, my personal favorite is uh, assembling IKEA furniture. That's always, a, that's always an experience. You might as well um, book out an all-day event just to put <laughs> together a table. But um, yeah, I mean, that's a classic example of obviously they... They need to, uh, you know, cater to multiple countries. So there's, you know, there's no contextual uh, language. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's an example of like the trade-off in, in that example is, you know, a relatively cheap product. But, I mean, you have to invest extra time to actually, you know, take out a PhD in, in furniture <laughs> assembly to, to actually work out, you know, is this the right Allen key or is this the, the wrong Allen key, et cetera. Uh, well, I, I want to ask you an experiential question because this is something I've not done personally, but may, maybe you have. Have you ever gone the route of buying or starting with an open source project 
And then there was a commercial variant of it, you know, where you could, you could now pay to have the company that does most of the coding for this open source project support you. Have you ever done that? So you mean say product A has a, has a free and a commercial offering, an open source and a commercial offering, and then you use product A and then you end up get buying the commercial offering? Yeah, or or maybe it's maybe it's just open source and the software is the same, but uh, you could get a support contract from someone to to help you raise the puppy. I guess I can't recall off the top of my head, but I wouldn't be adverse to it. Again, hmm. it's it depends what so, what problems it's going to solve for me and the organization that I work for. Because at the end of the day, you know, you've only got a fixed amount of time per week, per month, per year, so you you really need to um maximize that value and scale yourself and scale your team. So I wouldn't be uh, against that. I think uh, I won't harp on them too much, but you know, companies like uh, HashiCorp, you know, they start out, it's, it's very easy to use the free version and, you know, it's, uh, you know, you get your value and then, uh, you know, I, I see this a lot now, a company will have say 10 features in their product and, you know, the first four to six will be free. And then the ones you really want, there'll always be at least one in the feature that you want in the commercial offering. So again, when it makes sense to do so, you, sh- you should absolutely, you know, pay for the commercial offering through through that criteria I said before, um, because, you know, you've only have a fixed amount of time to, to achieve whatever outcomes you need to achieve. We're having this conversation, Daniel, and I'm trying to figure out why in my brain I don't equate commercial software i don't put commercial software and open source software on an equal plane i i elevate commercial software in my mind even with the concessions i've made to you in in you know as we've been kindly arguing one with another i haven't i still think of commercial software as well here's this polished thing you know and i come from back in the era of uh, of shrink wrap software where you it came in a box and there was a CD or there were floppy disks or something and you put them in the machine and loaded it up you know, you think yeah, of I that, remember that, that too yeah. <laughs> well it's so different now when you just you know download a thing and slam it in and and you know there's a trial or you got to feed in a license key or something it's just it's got a different vibe to it but commercial software still almost feels like I felt back when you were literally pulling shrink wrap off a box that contained a book and the media that the software came on and so on. And open source software feels like a kid in his basement hacked this together. And if it works for you, great, but good luck. And I'm trying to, you know, and I know it's not, I mean, I've talked to a lot of open source developers and worked with a lot of open source projects and it is so much more nuanced than that. And in a lot of cases, there are big companies that have funded a number of developers or are throwing a lot of money at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation or the Linux Foundation, et cetera, to make open, the, some open source project be of benefit to the broader community or a consortium of companies and so on. But somehow they're still not equal to me. I look at the commercial thing as like, that's that's the thing, you know, that you can you can take that and that's for reals at and the open source thing is like, eh, maybe. I'm trying to put my finger on. I, I mean, do you do you really put those two in your mind on an equal playing field where it's like you truly just look at it from that business perspective, evaluate the risks and, you know, six to one, half dozen the other. It all depends on what's the right match for your particular scenario. Do, do you think the quality, the code quality and so on in a general sense is roughly equal i think it has a little bit like i'm going to be you know completely frank everyone has a bias in this space and it's probably born out of your experiences or what you're trying to do in terms of your career so for example myself i spend a lot of time work out uh you know network automation solutions you know in my own time and build out tools or or features to help out other people you know i have a, a probably you know, an unashamed bias in regards to, you know, I've, I've used a lot of open source products to achieve a lot of value, not too much financial cost to me, but a, a large learning and experience cost. So, you know, that, that's an investment that I want to make. You know, I want to learn how a product works or I want to get an outcome without necessarily paying for a commercial product. So I've imposed the constraint on myself, which is money. Um, and I've traded that off with, you know, time and learning. So there's definitely that. I don't think that they should 
I, I, I see what you're saying about uh, do I truly see them on the same level? No, I don't. I don't think they're on the same level. I think commercial will always be first back to what we were talking about before because IT will probably for, for, for a while still be perceived as we just need it to work mm. more broadly. So that risk profile gets cascaded down through an organization. And if my livelihood or, or my job had to choose between choosing a commercial product with commercial support with you know the perceived safety blanket of having someone to call versus you know let's send a PR review to someone to get a hot fix in yeah look i'm probably going to choose commercial i'll be i'll be be really honest with you but it it depends you know what environment you're in and how much the conditions are conducive to taking risks or or thinking of more creative ways of doing things you just said Phrase something in a very interesting way that might actually end up in the show title. We'll see what happens. But uh, perceived safety blanket. Let's let's talk about this for a second. If commercial software is a perceived safety blanket, and I think you nailed it. I think that's exactly right. We're both seem to be in a similar mindset where it's like, okay, push me hard. I'm probably going to choose commercial because it is a perceived safety blanket. We we preface that with the word perceived. Well, why would we say perceived? Well, in a modern, uh, certainly lately, like if you go to the Packet Pushers Slack channel and just monitor a con with the, the conversations for the week, somewhere in there that during that week, someone's going to be griping hard about some nasty bug that they ran into. It could be security related. It could be maybe it's a memory leak. Maybe it's, you know, whatever the latest, you know, dot release is horrifying for some reason. We're getting really poor quality from a number of vendors. To the point where, you know, if you were at, at, at a point where you like to just upgrade because you get the latest features and that's a good thing, we're all gun shy. No one wants to upgrade now, if, especially if things are stable. You know, oh my gosh, you know, you upgrade if things weren't so stable. You know, you don't upgrade if you don't have to, uh, by and large. I mean, that's not new either because there was a lot of times like, like, like when would you upgrade, uh, you know, the, the iOS version on a core switch? You know, never. Uh, if you could get away with it, but if you had to, then you would, but it was so painful to upgrade that you didn't want to be, you know, the risk assessment on that was, was too unpredictable because you just didn't know what was coming. Even back in the day, Cisco had their safe Harbor program. They called it aimed at core switches yeah. and, and mission critical devices. But I still haven't gotten over this. Is, this is a lot of years back. This is an old thing, but there was a bug in EIGRP, which we happened to need as a routing protocol. It had a memory leak that would cause a system reboot. Uh, it was it was absolutely a critical and horrifying bug in Safe Harbor code that was supposed to be stable. My point being, it's not a new problem, but it seems to be getting even worse where commercial software just seems to be so constantly buggy and being upgraded and stuff um, of, of necessity because you just can't keep up with the, the, the bugs. So... That's an argument, not against commercial software, but it does, again, that phrase of perceived safety blanket puts it on a more equal footing with open source. If you think the code quality of open source is, eh, you know, meh or suspect or, you know, not particularly great, are we arguing that commercial software is so much better these days? I, I don't think we can make that argument anymore. It just seems like quality sucks, Daniel. I'll also just talk about I don't know. This is this is one of the reasons that I like open source software, and uh, maybe it's because of I've, I've been spending you know the last five to six years in in using the the software products, and I, I've recently developed you know a, a, a mini tool that um, I've, I've open source called Mother Starter, which is basically you know a data transformation tool that takes you know your network inventory and transforms it into you know, different outputs for different network automation platforms. But, you know, as a result of um, developing that myself and looking at reference projects and looking at how people write their code, document their code, test their code with an open source product, I, I can see, uh, you know, where the, where the issue may be. Um, I can see how, how well they perform their unit tests or their coverage tests. It's, it's all there. It's all in public viewing. I can see under the hood. I can reason as to, you know, the quality of the engineers working on it, how diligent they are or not, how invested they are in 
uh, you know, fixing bugs at, you know, a myopic level or maybe more so at an architectural level. Whereas if I buy a commercial software, I'm essentially handing over that faith and trust to someone else, which is completely fine and that's okay. Just as long as a broader organization understand that if we, if we get a commercial product, there will be bugs. There will be bugs in open source software. How much influence do we have in getting them to solve it? Mm-hmm. Also, how happy are we at the, uh, as, a, as a business to, you know, a bug going on for weeks or months or not being fixed till, you know, the quarterly update? As long as we're fine with that, as long as we've architect, architected the network in a way that, that can manage those, those risks or issues and as long as we've considered all that, that's completely fine. Because there are long, long-standing bugs. You know, there mm. are things that just take ages to actually work out. You know, or replicate, particularly in networking. You know, as you mentioned before, with the the long, long-standing memory leaks and that sort of stuff. Yeah. There is some weird stuff that goes <laughs> yeah. on for sure. Yes. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt you. No, well, I think you've got to be in. I don't know, maybe ten percent or less of engineers, people that are historically on the operations or consuming technology side, as opposed to people who are writing code and creating. So just curious, what languages could you parse well enough to be pretty comfortable understanding what's going on in there? Uh, yeah, I'm, I mainly deal in Python. So yeah, I'll be able to read Python code and, and at least understand what it's doing or what it should be doing and at least have questions. Not C? No. I think I did yeah. C plus plus in in community college, but uh, yeah, wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't know it if I, I did, saw it now. I did some flavor of C, and I think I can recognize it enough to shake a little bit. But uh, yeah, not uh, <laughs> certainly not good in anything. Python is where I spend most of my time these days, and I I'm still enough of a you know dabbler that I don't know how comfortable I'd be looking at someone's Python code and how long it would take me to parse through it. I could get there, you know, I could get there, but it would take a bit. I just don't write enough of the code to be able to parse an open source project and then quickly come to grips with what it's doing and you know how seriously they deal with it and all that stuff. You know, it, partly because uh, it's not just the code, is it? You know, you you made the point like how seriously do they take their unit tests and you know and yep. so on. There's all this peripheral stuff around coding that's not just writing code; it's also testing and deploying and so on. Yeah, I mean, if I talk about the project that I just recently created, I I probably wrote the code, I don't know, let's say there's 10, 10 units of effort, probably took me, I don't know, two and a half units of, of effort to actually write the code. And then I spent, I, I over-indexed on testing, documentation, um, you know, developing videos to show people how to use it, um, you know, user guides, etc. So... Uh, it it took me it took me a long time to work all that stuff out, but it was it was a worthwhile exercise in terms of it's all good and well for me to say hey, you know I expect this from a vendor, but then when I actually had to do it myself, I I understood firstly how 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 much effort it actually takes to get it to that level, but also um, how much ongoing investment it may need. So that um, you know I wrote the the first version of the code and. Uh, I got I got someone else to review it, and uh, you know they they pointed out a few things, and then I basically had to sort of re-architect it again. But um, yeah, just going through that experience made me understand that you know quality documentation is hard and and requires a lot of effort, but it also requires you to um, consider it from the very start of whatever it is that you're building. So um, a lot of people, myself included, write code and then. And then go back through and document it afterwards. But you, you really, you really should, uh, you know, almost write out, you know, the 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 use cases of what you're trying to solve, and then write your code against that. You know, they I think they mm. call that test driven development. Well, man, I I don't know that we've come up with any hard answers here yet. But but I'll I'll say I'll say this. So if I look back at that original article I wrote in Human Infrastructure Magazine 188, you know, the the metaphor, I still think my metaphor works. In a specific scenario, that yep. specific scenario isn't going to be applicable to every company and every organization. So yep. definitely a point here you made me ponder is, depending on the kind of a company you are, the choice between open source and commercial isn't 
that straightforward. Yeah, it's always going to be a trade-off no matter what you do. But the trade-off to raise a puppy might actually be the right one for you if you've got the staff, if you've got the time, if you can bring the functionality forward that you want. Another point here is that going commercial doesn't mean you're still not raising a puppy. So the... (laughs) Because it depends so much on the quality of the product, the complexity of the product that you've bought and what it is that you're trying to make it do. Yeah, so there's always going to be some puppy raising, but you might have to raise a puppy on your own with no training or or skills, or you might have to raise a puppy with, you know, a guided approach to raising puppy Labradors with (laughs) dog company A. So I think, uh, yeah, that was my point was just, there will always be some sort of puppy raising to to use our analogy, but I mean, how far in the weeds do you want to get and, and how, and, and, and how much will you be encouraged and supported to get in the weeds? Because if you, if you're going to make an investment into open source software, you're, you're doing it for a, for a longer term uh, recoupment of your investment. You're not, you know, choosing that product and then you're going to get an immediate payback. So um, in the short term, it can seem unencouraging to do so. So that's what I, you've sort of got to look at it. That's why um, I, I listed out those those criterion before, because in the mm. short term, it, it's crazy to choose open source. Just buy the product, be done with it. But, but think about it long term. It is more complicated, but interesting. It does go back to that perceived safety blanket thing, I think. So just one more example before we uh, before we call it a podcast daniel but there were some people that talked to the packet pushers in the back channel during the whole thing with cumulus and broadcom if you followed that where yep. broadcom is basically pulling the sdk support away from cumulus so the the last well as of this point i don't remember what the version was but wherever cumulus linux was that was the last version that they were going to have access to the broadcom chipset directly and going forward is to be like uh, and now we're on Mellanox and NVIDIA stuff. Hooray! And that, that was kind of it. That burned some people. They had 100%. invested in some white box switches that were on Broadcom chipsets, and now they're stuck in that point in time, that version of Cumulus Linux that would be the last one they could run on that platform. Now what do they do? And for at least one company, the answer was, we'd gone to bat to go with this disaggregated model, and we got burned hard uh and we're just going back to a major vendor i don't remember if they were going arista or who they were going with but they were going back to some major vendor because it was a great experiment no we're done it's not simple to make the decision all the time you know there's other companies i know that have invested in disaggregation and maybe they've bit big on free range routing there's certainly a number of larger companies that have you know done that and uh well it, it, that pops to mind because uh Don Sharp, who's been on the Heavy Networking yep. show before, is uh, the, the lead developer for Free Range Routing, which, and he works for Cumulus. So it's all part of it. It's, so it's not, a, it's not a simple equation. It's not simple. It's case by case. And you got to evaluate what you're picking, what the risk of that is versus the trade-off of going another route. Uh, going back to my example of spending huge dollars on a big software package that was going to really help us bring new features into the production environment, then just not having time to make the product do what it needed to do. You know, that, that was a risk. That was a trade-off. And that ended up, that led to abandoning the product. We just kind of gave up on it over time. So it's not, it's not straightforward. And I don't know where puppies fall I, into this metaphor, Daniel. Anymore, but I, I think, uh, like, back to the example that you, that you mentioned from, from my very limited experience, what I'd recommend is, you know, we work in an industry whereby the future is we all we know about the future is that we will be using we will absolutely be using something different in three years or five years that's true we need to make a decision and be comfortable you know like let's say we're building a uh you know a, a 30-story building we need to make a decision on level one that you know by the time we get to level 10 we might have to refurb level one before we get to level 30 so um leaving yourself that agility to to be able to swap out that decision later on rather than just going, you know, all eggs, all in one basket. So, um, you know, when you're making a commercial investment in something, uh, you know, it can be, it can be, it can be harder to, to say, you know, that, that $1.5 million we spend in 
in 2016, we're, we're gutting that now and we need to move with something else. So that's back to my broader point, which is, you know, if IT's just got to stay on, people are like, why are we paying $1.5 million to change, you know, to change all the, <laughs> the seat pans on all the toilets for? Why can't we just leave it? Mm. Well, Daniel, uh, this has been a great conversation anyway. and uh, thanks for making me think even even more broadly about this topic. So it's it, it's really complicated. And the more I've been more we've been conversing, the more I've been scratching my head and going, yeah, that's other stuff that's worth considering. Now you have you're on GitHub, you've published some open source software yourself. You got a blog. Share with people anything that uh, you'd like. You feel free to reach me on um Twitter. My Twitter handle is Daniel Teshney. I might uh, I might get you to add that to the show <laughs> notes. No one's gonna guess that surname. Um, I also I also have a blog, uh, blog.danielteshney.com. And I'm also on GitHub as well. You can see some of the projects I've worked on on there. And my username on GitHub is writememe. That's W-R-I-T-E-M-E-M-E. -E -E. Uh, play on write memory. For those of you who have mm. been lucky enough and to know the, that, uh, that open years. source project that I referred to, that was uh, that was Mother Starter, yeah, yeah. So um, it's just a uh, try and come up with a catchy name. So um, the idea being to create sourdough bread, yep. you know, you need a mother starter or, or you know a starter that you that you feed constantly uh, every day, and then from that you produce you know delicious bread over time, and over time it grows in complexity and taste. I've recently been diagnosed with celiac disease, so there's there's no more sourdough for me. So um, uh, yeah. So it's uh, you know, the the idea of the project is you know you feed in your inventory data about your network, and you know, in in one side and then out the other side, you you can take advantage of that data, uh, to, um, consume multiple network automation solutions. So things like Nornir, um, which is an open source project, uh, Ansible. And you know, output the files to different formats. Excellent. Well, Daniel, thanks for spending time with us. Uh, Daniel's on the other side of the world from me. He's in uh, in Australia. It's early in his morning. It's late in my afternoon, and it was great to have this conversation. Uh, just a little bit of housekeeping for you there. If you're in the Packet of Pushers audience, we got a Slack channel. I mentioned that. Go to packetpushers.net/slash/slack. There's a link there, so you can sign up, and it gives the rules. There's not many rules. Anybody can join in. I don't care if you work for a vendor, you're in sales, whatever. As long as you obey the rules. Go on in, join the Slack community there at Packet Pushers that we've got. We also redid our subscribe page. So if you want to know the current lineup of podcasts, we got a bunch of them and our YouTube channel and so on. It's all there at packetpushers.net slash subscribe. Scroll through the list, find the resources that you'd benefit from. Sign up. We don't know who you are. We don't track your name. We're not planting cookies on your browser or anything like that. It's all just meant to be make it easy for you to find what the Packet Pushers podcast network and YouTube, and the newsletter, etc., has to offer for you. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter, at Packet Pushers. We're also on LinkedIn. And uh, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts if you'd like to do that. You know, makes us feel good to get those five-star reviews every now and again, because, uh, frankly, we're very insecure. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>